Hello and welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. I'm Jonathan Edwards. My nickname Jed was given to me by a former boss about 15 years ago and it just kind of stuck. I hope that you will really learn and benefit from this explanation of God's truth today. Thanks for listening to episode 17 of the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. Today I want to talk about an idea that coordinates with the lesson that I taught last week on how to contend earnestly for the faith and what that means. You see, every saint has a responsibility to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to us. But where do you do that? How do you do that? Thankfully, the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, and because of his divine authorship, has put within the text of Scripture unifying concepts and themes so that we know not only how to live, what to believe, but where to practice it. And in today's discussion, I want to explain to you that the primary place for the Christian's work of contending earnestly for the faith is not in academia, not on the interwebs, not even in podcasting, but the primary place where Christians contend earnestly for the faith is within the local church and as an extension of local church ministries. How do we know that? Well, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, the first one, he writes to Timothy, instructing him about how he was to conduct business and set the affairs of the local church in order. And he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so there was a location, there was a place where the saints were supposed to contend earnestly for the faith. And that place, that location, is the church. Now, before you start thinking about the local place where you go, to gather with the saints and worship. You have to understand, what is Paul talking about when he says the church? What does that word mean? How is he using that? Well, the context of verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15, helps us to place that word church. Look at what he says very carefully. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so the church of the living God is compared to or is an explanation of, that's probably a better way to put it, the household of God. So who is the household of God? That's the first question we have to ask and answer about this text. Who is the household of God? Well, in Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4, we find that Paul teaches that all believers, whether male or female, whether slave or free, whether Jew or Gentile, are 
sons of God through their common faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we believers who have faith in Jesus have been adopted into God's family and we are now members of the household of God. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, and he communicates this basic truth. Formerly, all of you were alienated from Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were enemies of God. But now, now because of what the Holy Spirit has done in regenerating your hearts and enabling you to believe, now you are joined to God through faith in Christ and you are being built up as the church, as the one entity that God has left here on the earth for the present age to be his means and his instruments in the world in which we live. So the household of God, which is the church of the living God, is the people. It's the people. It's you and I when we gather together in a local assembly to read the word, study the word, pray together corporately, sing praises to God, to bear one another's burdens, to lift one another up, to encourage one another. We are the church. We collectively have a responsibility then to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And you can see now how these two ideas, that of contending earnestly for the faith and that of being the pillar and support of the truth, how those two ideas coordinate together to give believers in the present age a mission statement. We are to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down, and the way that we do it is through the promotion of God's truth, through the proclamation of God's truth, through our steadfastness upon God's truth, and our upholding of God's truth, no matter what. And this is how the church has both succeeded and failed through various points in its history. You see, the church is a called-out assembly. The church, by its very nature and definition, is uniquely different than any other assembly of human beings on the planet. Congress may be elected. Social clubs may have admission rituals and elections for officers. But nobody except God, determines who is the church. Because God has elected those to salvation from before the foundation of the world. He has called them out from amongst all the other individuals of the world. He has illumined their hearts and their minds. The Holy Spirit has regenerated them so that they will believe the message of the cross and they will trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. The church is a totally unique assembly. It is not chosen by human agency or human desire. It is divinely appointed by the one true creator, God. The 
the church has a unique role, responsibility, and conception within the age in which we live. Now you think about that definition. You think about all the presuppositions that you have to believe to come to understand everything that I just explained. You have to believe the whole of Scripture because that definition that I gave about the church incorporates many theological concepts of Scripture and then seeks to put them into practice to limit and narrowly define the group of people who gather together into what is called the church. And how do we come up with such a definition? Is it because that's what I thought was the right thing to do? Is it because I just have a a bias or a prejudice and I only want this certain group of people to be part of my church? No. No, that's not how we come up with it. No, we come up with the definition of what the church is because we look at the text of Scripture and we interpret the text of Scripture literally within its near context and its far context. We interpret the text of Scripture grammatically, saying that every word has an appointed meaning, an appropriate meaning, according to the context, and we're not going to twist and redefine words to mean what we want them to define. And we also interpret Scripture based upon its historical context, that the church meant something. The word ekklesia in Greek meant something in the New Testament time in which it was used, and Paul at the instruction of the Holy Spirit, took that word and gave it a specialized meaning for believers. So the church then is the household of God. And the church is of the living God. That means we were born of the living God. The living God is the source of us. And that's true. Because God has everything to do with our salvation, everything to do with our perseverance, everything to do with displaying mercy to us and calling us and justifying us and sanctifying us and ultimately one day glorifying us. So why is this an important topic? Why does it coordinate with this idea of contending earnestly for the faith? Well, if the church is the people and the saints are to contend earnestly for the faith, when the saints stop contending earnestly, when the saints redefine the church, it weakens. It weakens the truth of God. Now, Let me be careful to explain that. It doesn't mean that God's truth becomes null and void. What it does mean is that as the church and the saints within the church compromise the faith, as they seek to blend man-made ideas with God's truth, it waters down God's truth. It weakens it so that it's hard to distinguish from anybody else's ideas. 
You see, the faith that we hold should be the loftiest faith in the whole world. The truth that we proclaim ought to be the loftiest truth that is proclaimed in the whole world. The reality that there is one interpretation to God's truth ought to be the call of every true believer to try to seek that out and put it into practice. And so when the church at large does not contend earnestly for the faith, when the church at large seeks to invite those who are not believers into the assembly, when the church at large has a philosophy of prioritizing social justice above God's true justice, the church in many ways ceases to function as a church ceases to be a uniquely called-out assembly. It begins to imitate human institutions. Now, that's not to say the church can't do good works in the community. Certainly, the good works that believers do are a testimony of God's mercy and compassion and grace. But when the church prioritizes good works, social justice, social reforms, and social programs above and beyond the proclamation of truth, it has failed to be the pillar and support of truth. And why is that? Because truth divides. Truth separates. Truth is hurtful to the unregenerate man because the unregenerate man doesn't want anything to do with God's truth. The unregenerate man rejects God's truth. The unregenerate man can't understand God's truth unless the Holy Spirit supernaturally regenerates the heart, and enables that individual to believe. And so we have at our church that particular presupposition that the Holy Spirit is the one, the member of the Trinity, who enables men to understand God's truth. And because of that, we believe it is the Word of God that has the power to convict because that's what the Holy Spirit uses to convict men's heart. And our goal, our desire, is to be the pillar and the support of the truth to the best of our ability. That means we don't compromise on major doctrinal issues. We don't look at the culture and say, what would be sensitive in our culture? Let's make sure we emphasize that. We don't look at the circumstances that we're in and say, wow, if I want to change or grow my church, maybe I should stop doing A, B, and C and start doing X, Y, and Z. We know that there are ways, there are methods to grow a church, but you can grow a church numerically and starve it spiritually. 
And so many churches in America have gone down that route. They have confused the church and what the church's purpose is for and who the church is. They have confused it. They have distorted it. They have redefined it. And instead of the church being the pillar and support of the truth, the majority of churches in America are pillars in support of programs. They're pillars in support of pet projects. They're the pillar and support of all kinds of things except true biblical doctrine. Now Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says to him at the very beginning, he had a goal, a purpose for his instruction. Look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So there is a constant battle that is happening for the hearts of people. There is a, on the one hand, desire to proclaim truth, a need to proclaim truth, so that people will have a right understanding of who God is, so that they will be able to understand God's revelation of himself to humanity correctly. And yet, on the other hand, there are individuals who reject that truth, who reject that knowledge, and they want to pay attention to what Paul calls myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation. Paul says these are strange doctrines. They are doctrines that are not consistent with the faith. Paul, who was not afraid or unused to battle, had to instruct his protege Timothy, who is now serving without Paul as the primary oversight, Paul had to instruct Timothy about these realities and encourage him and say, look, young man, you go fight this fight. You do the battle. He writes to Timothy to make sure Timothy understood what the battle lines were that you had to protect the faith at all costs, that you had to support the truth at all costs, that it was your responsibility to do so as a believer and as one who was a shepherd over the flock of God there at Ephesus. That's why Paul writes to Timothy and says in verse 18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy. I'm entrusting this command to you. You implement these truths. You do these truths. You emphasize these truths. You follow these truths because you will fight the good fight. 
by doing so. You will keep the faith by doing so. You will keep a good conscience. And if you reject these commands, if you reject these principles, then you will suffer shipwreck in regard to your faith, just like many others. And he names names. Can you imagine that? It's hard for me to imagine that, standing at the pulpit and naming names of people who said they were with us and then rejected the faith. Paul calls them out. He says, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Wow, these people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, were most likely genuine believers who walked away from the faith. And Paul says that he has handed them over to Satan so that they could experience discipline at the hand of God and at the direction of Satan. Listen, my dear friends, brothers and sisters in the faith, we have an extremely important and crucial obligation to contend earnestly for the faith and as a corporate body, the church, to be the pillar and the support of the truth. Now, anybody who is in Ephesus reading this letter would have understood what a pillar looks like because Ephesus was the city where the Greeks had built a temple to the goddess Diana. Her other name was Artemis. She was considered to be the queen of Ephesus, and her temple had 120 stone pillars supporting it. That is a powerful and mighty structure. Yet it pales in comparison to what the church is supposed to be when it comes to supporting the word of God. You know, the attacks against the Word of God are many. Some are bold. Some are subtle. Christians, by and large, have failed to repel the attacks, to hunker down and gather around the body of truth that has been once for all revealed to us. Christians have allowed the truth that we ought to support to be slowly chipped away, piece by piece, little by little, to the point where the churches that really stand on the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, are unique. They're few and far between. They are anomalies. In a culture that is filled with churches, you can go to any town in America and find 10 churches. I live in rural America. And so all these little burgs that have 2,000 to 5,000 people, they've got three, four, five churches. And you can find many local assemblies that are not being the pillar in the support of the truth. I'm not saying that all of them are that way. There are certainly some that are. We 
to the best of our ability, try to do that. But you know, the reason we have to proclaim this message, the reason Paul had to write it to Timothy, is that even in the first century, even 30 years after Jesus' death, false teachers were creeping into the church trying to lead believers astray, trying to undermine the faith, trying to undermine the words of God that were handed down once for all. And so the battle hasn't gotten better. The battle has only intensified. The battle is raging. And we as believers must stand firm on every aspect of God's truth. And there are some aspects of God's truth that are being attacked vigorously than others. I can't tell you the last time I've read something or heard something that denied the virgin birth of Christ, but almost every day, or at least every week, I read something that attacks God's delineation of gender. God made them male and female. Daily or weekly, that, that idea is being attacked by the secular society that we live in. Nearly weekly, we are receiving attacks on the sanctity of marriage and the purpose of marriage and the biblical definition of who can be married. Weekly, attacks come against the sanctity of life. That babies who are conceived inside of a mother's womb aren't really human beings. They're just a blob of cells. They don't have rights. And now we have some states like New York and Virginia, some congresspeople who want to admit and affirm and endorse the idea that it's okay for a mom to decide she doesn't want her baby even after it's been born from the womb and it's a healthy baby. These are the ideas that people in our culture are attacking. And where is the church? Where is the church on these issues? Where is the public outcry from people who claim to believe God's word? If you look at a survey of polls, most Americans, a majority of them, still identify as Christian. How can a supposedly Christian group of people tolerate such wickedness amongst them? Clearly, the church is not doing her job. And the church is not doing her job because the saints in the church aren't doing their jobs. If the saints aren't willing to contend for the faith, if the saints aren't willing to stand up for the truth of God, then the church at large is not willing to stand up for the truth of the word of God. So there is an exhortation from Paul to Timothy to proclaim true doctrine. But even more than that, in addition to the proclamation of true doctrine is an understanding that believers in their personal lives must practice the truth. Now, this is extraordinarily challenging. 
I, for one, for example, know that I'm to speak kind words. I'm to be patient. I'm to be slow to anger. And yet there are times when it is very difficult to be patient and slow to anger when your children have disobeyed for the 15th time or the 20th time or the 100th time. It's difficult to be patient and slow to anger when you've explained something over and over and over again and somebody else doesn't seem to get it. It's difficult to practice the truth. It's difficult to walk in humility. It's difficult to be gentle. It's difficult to practice the fruits of the Spirit. And so, yes, the proclamation of the truth is important, but it's the practice of the truth that is equally important and that really helps a church be firm. Because when believers practice the truth, by and large, there is unity, there is peace, there is love and support of one another. There is a great sense of purpose that is established and in awe of the God who saved us. A real respect and a real recognition that we serve a great God and we are not worthy to do so. That it was only by his mercy we were chosen, we were called, We were justified and sanctified and one day to be glorified. Too many Christians have a reputation for being saintly on Sunday and worldly during the week. And that's why there are many admonitions, many commands, many exhortations in the New Testament for believers to not love the world, to not love the things of the world, to make sure that their focus is on God. In fact, what did Jesus say were the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. We have no problem loving ourselves, but we have a problem loving our neighbor or our spouse or our son or daughter, our brother, our sister. We have a problem loving them as much as we love ourselves. It's much easier to be the pillar and support of the truth and to be a proclaimer of truth when you put that truth to practice in your daily life and you see the benefits of it. When you see that faithful obedience produces endurance, it produces peace, it reduces the struggles that you have, not eliminating the struggles that you have due to the everyday challenges we face in life, but it eliminates the emotional and spiritual difficulties that we have when you faithfully obey the Word of God because you're resting contentedly in what God says. You're rejuvenated because you've obeyed the Word of God. You're strengthened and you're able to be filled with the Holy Spirit because you're submitting to the Word of God. With the high calling that we have as saints and the lofty responsibility of being the church and the pillar and support of the truth, believers have to bear this in mind, that God said, be holy because I am holy. So how do you do that? How are you doing 
as the pillar and support of the truth? Two different questions, two different answers, but very related. How do you be the pillar and support of the truth? You have to know the truth. You have to be in the Word of God. You have to know what it says. You have to have it as your hope, your sustenance, your daily bread. How do you practice the truth? Through prayer, humility, seeking the face of God, seeking the correction that others provide and the accountability that they give in your life. The conclusion then is that the saints as the church, are the pillar and support of the truth. And the truth is the revealed word of God. And the church that you attend will only be as strong as your commitment to uphold the revealed word of God. Do you know it? Do you trust it? Do you study it? Does it inform your decision-making? Does it inform your daily living? Does it inform your worship? These are essential questions that must be answered. But as you seek to answer them, if you're really honest, you will find out that it's difficult to do this, but it's extraordinarily rewarding. It's difficult, but rewarding. And you will face persecution for doing what is godly. But don't be discouraged. For the words that Paul wrote to Timothy about fighting the good fight, keeping the faith, and a good conscience, those words apply to you too. Be strengthened by those words. Know that you stand in a long line of saints who have fought for the truth, upheld the truth, and many of whom have died for the truth. Are you willing to do that? If you are, I can assure you, you and your fellow saints who gather at your local church will make a huge impact for the cause of Christ in this world, and you will reap many rewards in the life to come. Well, thank you for listening today. I hope that this has challenged you and caused you to think through what is important, what is necessary, and what is essential for the saints to do together so that they can have a church that is pleasing to God. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to find out more information about our church or what we believe, check us out on the web at www.gbchapel.org. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at gracebrotherinchapel at gmail.com. Thanks. God bless.